This week I'm joined by Melanie Zyler. And Melanie is in Cologne and she's an animal communications, ecology and evolutionary biologist. Is that correct? Well, kind of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, well, the broad definition would be behavioral scientist, I guess. Okay. So, or primatologist. Well, that's an interesting field, um, more interesting for me because obviously it uh, has a relationship to human behavior and coaching. So what drew you to the field of primatology then? Well, I think it started really, really early in my uh, life. So I was always um, watching a lot of nature documentaries with my parents. They were very into that. And um, I also always had lots of different animals pets so rabbits and different kind of birds and uh, guinea pigs and I was always trying to kind of communicate with them and understand what um, well they were trying to tell me or how they were communicating so um, it was quite natural that I chose to study biology mm -hmm. and um, then I had the chance to do a um, course at the Cologne Zoo on primate behavior and uh, I got stuck there really. So it sounds like you took a very practical route um, after you finished your studies so why did you take that decision um, and why did you take that particular opportunity to go to Cologne Zoo? Yeah so in, in uh, Cologne the biology studies is really based on genetics a lot mm. and so lab work and that's well, I mean, it's a great field too, but it's not that interesting for me to um, hang around in the lab all the time. So I'm, I love to be outside in the nature and um, watching animals. And so being at the zoo and basically staring at monkeys all of the time <laughs> is really what I loved. And uh, they had at that time a, a new group of uh, capuchin monkeys. Mm -hmm. And I like immediately fell in love with them because they're so intelligent and so well full of temper, you could say. Mm. And I just uh, wanted to have a closer look at their behavior and see well what they can do, what their cognitive abilities are, and how their social um, behavior is like. So um, I was really happy to be able to do this. Mm. I actually studied them for like 15 years now wow. so um, I'm still well I'm very good friends with the group actually at Cologne Zoo with the Capuchins so if they have new babies the females would come to me and present the babies to me what is um, yeah so they see me as part of the group really what's uh, so nice it's such a good feeling mm. and I get to know them really well but um, they always surprise me still so yeah. That's quite exciting. No, no, it sounds sounds wonderful. So um, how much human behavior do you uh, see in that group every day? <laughs> well, like everything, basically. <laughs> so <laughs> it's um, well, I did uh, studies on humans, too, um, like the last years. And um, if you know a lot about different primate behavior, I mean, we are primates, really. So yeah. even if uh, many humans still don't really want to hear that. Um, but it's nothing bad. I mean, they're so social and uh, caring 
very intelligent. You've got so different personalities with all individuals you observe. So uh, it's really similar. Mm-hmm. No, that's very interesting because um, we are monkeys. Um, and and I think that's probably one of the wa- reasons why we enjoy uh, watching them at the zoo is that we see ourselves in them and we see um, uh, the level of curiosity they have about their environment that we also have about our environment. Yeah, definitely. Though I think really most mammals are quite curious. So do you um, come from a, a, a scientific family? Is, a, is science in your family, was it a background that you had, uh, an environment when you were growing up? Or was it uh, something that you decided to do for yourself? Well, I'm not from a scientific background, really. So um, I'm actually the first to uh, even do my uh, Abitur, so kind of A-levels. So and also the first to chose to study and uh, do a PhD eventually. So, um, yeah, <laughs> they were a little bit maybe surprised because it's really unusual um, to do that um, if you're not from a scientific background and uh, they thought maybe it's too difficult for me. Mm. Um, But my parents definitely always just said, okay, you should just do whatever makes you happy. And uh, if you've got the abilities to do so in our head, Mm -hmm. you uh, should just go ahead. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, because I just always was very passionate about animal behavior and uh, conservation really. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just did it and it worked out. So sometimes I'm actually surprised (laughs) when I started to study and uh, would think about um, how it would be like to have a PhD. I would just think, well, that's, well, head in the clouds. It's quite unlikely, but, well, I did it. Yeah, no, I hear from a lot of people that, um, you know, the PhD is certainly a very high pressure time. Um, did you have any ever have any thoughts of of giving up or or not complete it? Were there any kind of difficult times while you were trying to to complete your PhD? Oh, actually, not. No. Surprisingly, no. Um, I mean, I was quite lucky. So for my PhD, well, that was based in Bristol in the UK, mm-hmm. and I went to Madagascar to study uh, the influence of habitat degradation and fragmentation on the behavior and ecology of a newly described lemur species at that time. Mm-hmm. So the Zahamalaza sportive lemur. Yeah. Probably never heard of that, but no. <laughs> <laughs> you can Google it. They're quite amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was like a really, really exciting time. So I lived in the Malagasy forests for a year in total, mm-hmm. and I had to uh, leave the camp and obviously um, do my own own uh, work there, yeah. but also care after uh, students and their work and stuff. So that was really, really challenging. So um, having, well, we had to fight forest fires and we had poachers around um, that we chased actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And um, so, and just staying healthy in that environment is uh, really difficult. So the next hospital was about like a week travels away. Yeah. So you really have to think about like tons of stuff all the time. Yeah. So this was definitely challenging. Also, just working together was so like in this really 
different culture yeah. and to communicate actually because I mean I learned a bit of French to uh, be able to communicate with my guides but mm. uh, when I arrived it turned out they don't even speak a word of French <laughs> <laughs> so they just spoke uh, Malagasy and um, well I tried to get a grip of someone here who uh, was able to speak Malagasy and teach me, but it's just impossible. So I just had a dictionary. Um, what didn't work out at all as well, because they pronounce uh, the words really, really differently. And most of my guides weren't uh, able to, to read. So I just couldn't show the words to them and ask them um, how they pronounce it. So that was quite difficult, but um, Luckily, we had a Malagasy student with us most of the time, and he was able to speak some French. And so we, well, <laughs> it was still hard because you kind of work a lot with your hands and body language, basically. Um, yeah, so it was quite fun. So it also sounds like you uh, didn't have much time to worry about the future or, or uh, worry too much about the past. And just really, you had to just live in the uh, live in the moment. Uh, um, yeah, to, yeah, to, to yeah. stay. Um, well, in some cases, just even to stay alive, to, to survive. So it made you. Yeah, grand. actually, I died nearly two times, so I got really ill. Yeah. So wow, that was uh, the. So that was a challenging time that you did your PhD. So yeah, tell me about that. Tell me about almost dying. Well, really, after six weeks in the field, I had uh, malaria. Hmm. Um, this was uh, quite an experience, really. Because, um, well, my I had a dream, actually, before I woke up and uh, realized I was uh, dreaming that I had malaria. Mm -hmm. That was quite interesting. And uh, luckily, I had all the medication with me because, as I said, it's like a week to the next hospital. So you couldn't really do this if you, if you are really ill. So, um, well, I took the medication, told uh, the people that I was ill and I uh, think I have malaria and, um, well, slept for three days, basically. And uh, luckily, the medication worked. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so that, was a, that was a scary time as well then. And what was the, the, the second one? Was that worse? The second one was worse? or, or uh... The second one was worse, yeah. Um, I was quite lucky then because uh, it was after my... Um, second time in the field I was in the field for like half a year mm. and it was quite a challenging field season really um, I should mention that we did basically 24 hours observations yeah. um, so on shift rotation obviously but um, so because my species was nocturnal mm -hmm. with nocturnal follows but they were also relatively active during the day when they didn't uh, leave their sleeping sites, but they were really vigilant, looking out for um, predators and stuff. Yeah. So uh, I chose to observe them during the day too. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's uh, the environment, being in the tropics, um, confronted with lots of different, well, I mean, temperature mm -hmm. and uh, all the different bugs and, uh, well, well, it's just it's just hard for your body to cope. And then the different sleeping patterns and, um, well, limited food resources, definitely. So rice and beans three times a day for mm -hmm. half a year is not fun. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I didn't even like rice and beans to begin with. So, <laughs> and um, when I came back, like after a week or so, I got really, really high fever, and like my heart was just racing, and I could just tell, okay, something's really wrong. So I went to the hospital here, and um, it turned out I had a really bad, bad um, E. coli infection. Wow. And uh, they said like half an hour later and I would have been dead. So I was in intense care for a few days and it took me like half a year to really fully recover from that. So yeah, that was scary. Yeah. And that experience, you know, as challenging and, and frightening as it was, what have you taken out from it? Oh, a lot. <laughs> I um, always wrote a like field diary. Mm -hmm. And I uh, typed it down, like when I finished field work, and I went through it and thought, okay, how did you do this? I mean, I got like tons of data out of it, and um, also like successfully fought several uh, forest and bushfires, and uh, well managed like the whole team and mm -hmm. there were up to 20 people and communicated under this uh, difficult circumstances with everyone and uh, we had really good time so it was really a strong team and um, well it was really I was impressed that I was able to really do all this so mm. so it was a really good thing for my self-confidence definitely and it also changes a lot of things, like how you view stuff and um, how you, what you really need in your life. So what's really important to you. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have uh, like internet or stuff. It's really out in the nowhere. So we had like one spot if you would walk like an hour from camp uh, where you had like a little bit of telephone reception sometimes so you would not really be able to call people whenever you want to talk about stuff so you really have to depend on yourself and the people that are there yeah it sounds like uh, the experience was really um, meaningful for you uh, and very impactful um, on you as well yeah definitely so how did you um, manage to to stay um, so grounded when um, when you're going through this. I mean, um, you know, you could tell this story in a way that it's just, it's really scary. Like, oh my God, I nearly died twice. Um, I was miles away from anywhere. I couldn't, I was really isolated. I couldn't talk to anybody. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm probably just kind of a positive person, but it mm -hmm. definitely made me way stronger. So just be able to tell that I can pull through like all the difficulties. And I can manage even in a really difficult situation and still be uh, like um, successful as a scientist. So, um, yeah, that was really interesting because I think, I mean, I thought I could do this, but you never really know until you are there yeah. and um, really experience all the stuff. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a really wonderful um, story. So thank you. Thank you for sharing it with me. So we got in contact uh, through Twitter um, because um, I think I noticed uh, you followed me and then I saw that you run uh, a magazine, an online magazine called The Female 
scientists. So tell me a little bit more about that. What's the female scientists all about? So um, I thought a lot about why women, well, women in general, but also women in science are perceived as less competent. What they definitely are. I mean, there are a lot of studies on that. Mm. Um, and uh, I heard that podcast where you were saying that you um, discovered that you are biased too, just mm -hmm. being a feminist mm -hmm. sometimes, that you have to kind of rethink and, okay, wait, let me think about that. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, we all have that. And I thought about, well, how did that happen? Yeah. Why do we think that women are less competent? But if we really look around in the media and... I mean, advertisements, magazines, like experts on TV shows, you are just, there are no women on there or very little um, in comparison to men. So mm -hmm. for talk shows, if they invite scientists, it's still that they're mainly like male scientists mm -hmm. that are questioned. And uh, I mean, that kind of forms like pictures in your head. I mean, our brain is designed to, like, put things in boxes and have stereotypes. So I thought, well, if we can just bring more women into focus and present more female scientists to, well, the public, we can just change the way women are viewed on the long term. So also for the next generation, I think that's really important. No, the, you're right. The gender roles message in the media is so um, uh, is so pervasive um, at some level. Um, it's it's everywhere, and you know even female magazines will play into that gender role stereotype, as will male magazines will play into a masculine um, gender role stereotype, and I think. You know that's our challenge now. How do we, how do we organize and and change that message in in the media that just because you're female doesn't mean that you you can't do um, certain jobs that you you can't do you can't be an engineer you can't be a surgeon you can't be a uh, uh, you know you can't be a rocket scientist um, you know how do we do that um, and um, what do we need to do to do that. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, the internet is such a great option to uh, start, like, to change the pictures. Mm. So, well, yeah, I hope on the long run, the media will kind of uh, get to the point, too, that they try to, like, display, like, all the different kinds of people in science. Well, not only in science. I mean, that's a general problem, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also, um, I mean, if you think of female scientists, I mean, maybe you, you know more mm -hmm. um, by now. So, but you, if you ask like the general public, um, what they think um, of women in science, they probably would think of someone like Marie Curie. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably the only one uh, most can name, if any. Yeah. And um, the problem is here that they are like, just this really badass scientist, really outstanding. And if you are a really young woman, maybe thinking about um, doing science um, for your career, 
you might be actually be like intimidated because you have the impression, okay, this is just a genius and I can never do this. So it's also important to really show what kind of personalities are in science. I mean, it's probably true for men too. Um, but to see, okay, what do female scientists really look like? What are the problems? What do they think? Are they unsure about if they're really capable of doing this? Do they ever doubt themselves? Yeah. This is quite important to um, well tell other women that they can do this, even if they are not like born geniuses. Yeah. Well, because and I think the, the point you've got there is that, in fact, the women in science are just like women everywhere. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, and, and this belief, the problem is that we, we put, we do it everywhere. We put too many unicorns in, in there. You know, here's Mary Curie. She's a unicorn. You know, there's um, Elton Musk. He's a unicorn. Yeah, and we, we focus all our attention on trying to be like those people. But the majority of us are average. If I look out the street here, you know, there's people walking up and down the street and they're all like me. Um, those are the people that I need to see and hear from, like people like me that have achieved something um, that's meaningful for them. So for women to be able to see, yes, look, there's somebody there. She's like me. She's she's got these kind of jobs. She's worries. You know, I can relate to this person. I can't relate to, to Marie Curie or Elton Musk because they're completely outside of my my paradigm. Yeah? I don't have yeah. any experience of them. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. So, but I also, um, so I don't only have like the portraits of this uh, different uh, women on there. I also try to have like a more focus on uh, on their research. So you've got the option to, if you've got, had a like paper out uh, to a journal, mm -hmm. you can make like a, like a wrap up, like a, yeah, extended uh, abstract of your work and present it there. So to get a little bit more intention, attention for your for your work, really, and to get it out to the media, hopefully in the long term. And, and what are your plans for for it then, for the for the magazine and and the um, and where you want to take it? Where do you want to take it? Well, I hope that it, um, that we will get a lot of attention, like worldwide, on the long run, and that uh, just like. I mean, it would be best if, like, all women in science would just go on there and present their work and uh, themselves and be able to connect and uh, be able to, like, be seen from the media. I mean, I guess if um, you run, like, a TV show and you're looking for experts, you probably just go on the Internet and type in, like, a name or a field of research and... Hopefully, like uh, on the long run, they will just be able to have a look at the female scientist and find someone they're searching for there. So mm -hmm. that would be quite amazing. Sure. Well, I think it's, it's an amazing um, uh, project. Um, and um, it's something definitely that, uh, you know, uh, I will keep promoting through my social media channels. Um, and it can be found at uh, thefemalescientist.com. Um, uh, yeah, and I think it's uh, I think it's great, and and it's been really really good talking to you. It was really interesting and um, thank you, inspiring as well. So I thank you for that.
Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.